placebos are really powerful. And, and one thing I learned while working on this book is that so many of the products and practices um, that are really heralded in, in this area for recovery, really when they work, it's via the placebo effect. Hey, hey, this is Jackie Tan and welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. On the show, I chat with experts, athletes, coaches and ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We explore the body's incredible ability to heal, adapt and evolve so you can crush limitations, reconnect your body and mind and discover your extraordinary potential. And before we get into this episode, I want to give a big shout out to my incredible sponsor, the Heavily Meditated app. Heavily Meditated is your down-to-earth meditation app for getting high on life. Packed with guided meditations as short as five minutes and up to 25 minutes, there is a meditation for everyone. I start my day with a five-minute energizer and I love a lunchtime whole, worthy and wise meditation. The app is gorgeous and has affirmations for a hint of inspiration as well. And for less than $6 a month when you sign up annually, it's honestly one of the best investments that you can make for yourself. Check out the Heavily Meditated app. Hey, hey, welcome to today's show. I'm so pumped about this one. Being a sports massage therapist, I've been a part of so many athlete journeys. And one thing that is the common theme across athletes is how they can improve or enhance their recovery. And nowadays, there are so many tips and tools and tricks and methods and protocols we are just inundated with all of this information it is sometimes a little hard to I guess decipher which is the good stuff which is the real stuff and which is true to their word so I have the incredible Christy Ashwanden who is a sports science writer and the author of Good To Go this book is a must read for every athlete out there who is looking to get an edge on their recovery. But not only that, it's for those who want to stop wasting time and money on products and tools and methods that have no scientific proof that they even work. It is such an excellent read and one I wish I came across earlier, which would have saved me some money. This episode is short and sweet and straight to the point. So enjoy this episode on recovery with Christy Ashwanden. Christy, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm super pumped about this conversation, talking about your book, Good to Go, How to Eat, Sleep and Rest Like a Champion. And I'm so glad you've written this book because (laughs) there are so many things that I used to do in my recovery <laughs> that I realize it's not really necessary. So I'm so glad you've written this book and every athlete should read it. But before we get into it, I'd love to um, for you to tell us about your journey as an athlete and the recovery measures that you took prior to writing the book. Sure. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I started off as a runner. I've, I've been a runner my whole life, I, I guess. That's kind of my the sport that I started with and that I continue to this day. Um, but then in college, I started bike racing. So I was a, a roadie, road racer for a while. I did that pretty seriously. Um, but then I started cross-country ski racing. And that, that's the sport that I probably did at the highest level. I was racing for the Rossignol team um, all over Europe. Uh, doing that. And the thing that I really learned while I was an athlete, it, it took me, unfortunately, a lot of my athletic career to figure this out, was that I am someone who uh, needs less training than other athletes, but I also have a greater need for recovery. And in other words, um, you know, I, get, I was getting fit quite fast, um, but then I was very easily overtrained. And what ended up happening to me again and again, as I was you know, under this mindset that more is better. And so I would uh, overtrain myself, I would skimp on recovery. And before I knew it, I was sick or injured or just overtrained and really flat and not performing well. Um, and it just took me years to realize that I really needed to spend more time and more emphasis on recovery and to realize that recovery is very individual. You can't, there's no hard and fast rule about what's enough and what's too much training what athletes really need to learn is to read their own bodies and understand how they're responding to training. And uh, yes, yeah, so that's what I did. And I really, this book is the book I wish that I had had when I was starting out as a serious athlete and maybe even as a younger athlete. I mean, I wish I'd had this as a high school athlete and a collegiate athlete to know you know, the things that are important and the things that aren't, because I spent too much time kind of, you know, looking at things like recovery drinks and things like that, rather than really paying attention to things that are much more important, like sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost one of those things where we're always like, you know, what's the quick fix? <laughs> How will I feel yeah. amazing straight away? <laughs> right. In, right. in, um, yeah, people, people always want the quick fix. Totally. And one comment, one bit of feedback that I sometimes get from the book is people are disappointed because they're reading it, looking for some secret ingredient and they, they want this, the thing that they can buy or the weird trick they can do in order to expedite their recovery. And, you know, there really are no shortcuts, but at the same time, I think the message of my book is really encouraging. And that is that, you know, the basics are really simple. They can be hard to master, but they're the things that are important. And so many people waste so much time and effort and energy and, and money, frankly, exactly. on stuff that just isn't important and doesn't work. Yeah, that's right. Well, well, let's dive deep into that. In chapter two, you've got Be Like Mike. And it's uh, yeah. Michael Jordan, who uh, who back in the day spruiked Gatorade. And uh, yeah, all about the illusion of a causality. If we, if we drink Gatorade, we'll be like Mike. Tell us about uh, the sports drinks out there. I want to linger for a moment on this idea of the illusion of causality. And this is something, this is a cycle, a term from psychology, which is really just, we see this association. And so we think one must cause the other, there mm. must be some causal relationship. And so, you know, sponsors really, this is the whole model for sponsorship and athletic um, products, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the reason that Gatorade was paying Michael Jordan because, you know, all these kids 
want to be like Michael Jordan. And so they think, well, he's drinking Gatorade. I have to drink Gatorade. That's what it takes to be, exactly. you know, a, a professional, successful athlete. And this just isn't the case. And we see that again and again, but we see so many companies that are sponsoring athletes and it, it creates this culture where athletes are being paid to promote and to pitch and to use certain products or to yeah. at least, you know, show, you know, Instagram posts or whatever that they're using these products, whether they are or not. And that's a whole nother topic exactly. for another day. Um, but, you know, they, they really create this, this illusion that everyone's using it and that this is somehow part of, you know, these athletes success. But in fact, you know, this is just them trying to pay the bills and these companies buying their way into the culture and making it look as though everyone needs to do this. And so in terms of sports drinks, it's really interesting. You know, you have these companies that have spent a lot of money really promoting this idea that you need to drink these drinks with um, electrolytes, um, which electrolytes is just a, a scientific and sort of fancy word for salt, um, which we get through our diets in other ways. And so, yeah, but, but we've been taught that we need to have these special um, particular drinks in order to stay hydrated, which just, it, it's kind of laughable, actually, yeah. the way these companies have turned hydration into something far more complicated and costly than it needs to be. Um, you know, from a scientific perspective, our bodies have a really powerful mechanism for ensuring that we stay hydrated. And it's something we've all experienced. It's thirst. And, you know, you if you've ever gone too long without drinking, you'll notice that you get really, really thirsty. Yeah, before anyone dies of dehydration, they're gonna get so thirsty that, you know, they'll drink out of the toilet if they have to. Um, so this idea that, you know, you, you have to have some very specific scientifically uh, determined amount of, of fluids with, with a particular amount of salt and all of this is just, is just nonsense. And we, we get those electrolytes from the foods that we eat. This isn't to say that hydration isn't important. And it's, it's very important that if you're an athlete exercising in the heat or in a situation where you may not have access to fluids, you know, making sure that you do have access to fluids and to, you know, food and calories when you need it, if you are doing endurance, long distance endurance exercise, um, then one benefit that these sports drinks can have is that they also have sugar and, and that's going to help fuel you, you know, your, your body will initially run them on its stored sugar in the, the muscles called glycogen. But at some point, if you exercise long and hard enough, you'll deplete this. And that's where, you know, sometimes this is uh, termed hitting the wall. It's a feeling like all of a sudden you're running out of gas and that's where um, a sports drink can be really helpful or, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a drink. It can be uh, an energy bar. It can be a banana. It can be some sort of thing that has energy and some carbohydrates and sugars and, and things like this. Um, but, you know, these companies have really convinced us that we can't have normal food and we can't just drink when we're thirsty, that, you know, we really need to enlist them to tell us what to do when our bodies are much more complicated and we possibly understand that, understand our bodies without, you know, some sports company, you know, looking over our shoulder and telling us what to do. Yeah. That is crazy. So then tell us about supplements because you're right. There are so many athletes and very, very high profile athletes who do push, you know, your protein powders, your BCAs and these superfood powders. And I mean, uh, is there any truth to any of these? Because we all know elite athletes work incredibly hard. That's probably not <laughs> that supplement that's uh, making the difference. 
Right, right. I mean, this, I think, goes again to the power of marketing as we kind of start off this conversation talking about um, the reason that all of these athletes are using these products is that they're paid to use them. And these companies have an incredible, it, it's amazing when you really look at it, almost every professional and elite sports team has some sort of supplement sponsor. Yes. And in fact, you know, I have an entire chapter in the book um, discussing supplements. And I think, you know, the takeaway advice, I'll just cut to it is very, very simple is that, you know, athletes do not need supplements. There's no supplement that's going to make you a better athlete. There just isn't. And, you know, a lot of these products prey on this idea that your, your nutrition and your diet is really terrible. And you might be deficient in something and adding this particular amino acid or, or protein or whatever is going, or, or, um, you know, different extracts from plants and things are going to give you superpowers. And there's just no, not good evidence for this. And when you, you start to dig into it, as I did in in the book, and really look beneath the surface, what you find is that most of these studies that are pointed to as evidence are funded and created by the companies that are selling these products. And these studies are not actually um, scientific endeavors trying to seek truth about the world. They are marketing exercises and, and they are just you know things that are being done to give uh, products some sort of bona fide certification to make them seem you know more powerful than they are. Um, the, the important thing here is to eat a balanced and nutritious diet. Uh, you know, these supplements are not going to give you something beyond that. And in fact, if you're an athlete who's subject to drug testing, it is absolutely essential that you avoid these things. I mean, we have case after case after case of athletes testing positive for substances that they, you know, inadvertently ingested in a supplement. And the reasons for this are, are varied. Um, but one of them is that a lot of these, uh, you know, the, the raw ingredients are, are made in sort of questionable uh, factories and things, a lot of them, so many of these things are made overseas where the quality control may not be as good as you would like. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, you just don't know what you're getting in these things. They are not regulated in the same way that drugs and pharmaceuticals are. So it's very difficult to really know what's in them. And so, you know, the risks to taking something like this are so much greater than any sort of minuscule little benefit you might get from it. Mm. I was so glad to read uh, this chapter because I was someone who thought I needed BCAs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I found out that I don't... (laughs) So you've uh, saved me money there. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're just, you know, ways uh, for some of these companies to, you know, take byproducts of of the dairy industry and turn them into a saleable product. Now, what are we going to do with this stuff? We'll just repackage it, you know, for athletes to tell them that this is, this is the secret. And, you know, I don't want to say that there's never, ever, I mean, some, you know, protein powders, some, if you're someone who's really struggling to get enough protein, you know, they may have a place, um, but you just, they're never, ever superior to real food. And the only reason to take something like this or a, a sports bar or things like this is because they're convenient and, you know, you're, you're hungry and this is something that's easily and readily available. But, you know, in most instances, real food is going to be just as accessible and much better for you anyway. <laughs> Exactly. That's it. I wanted to uh, talk about compression gear because this is something that you see a lot of athletes wearing and even I wear them and you had a funny story in your book (laughs) about wearing them. (laughs) What are 
proven benefits, if there is any? Yeah, um, there really aren't many proven benefits. It's interesting. <laughs> okay. These, uh, this compression stuff is actually, it, it started off for people with poor circulation, you know, diabetes and things where they, they're not getting good circulation. And so like compression socks help uh, maintain blood flow, you know, so if, if you have poor circulation, your blood can kind of pool in your feet, you know, if you're sitting for long periods of time, for instance, things like this. But the thing is, athletes don't have bad, bad circulation. And so, you know, it's sort of like giving you more air to breathe isn't going to improve your performance, right? Like you're already getting as much oxygen out of that air as you can, you know, the, the limit is not um, having more air in the room. And, and here, you know, athletes already have good circulation. And so these compre compression wear is not really going to be aiding their circulation. I mean, something that really does aid circulation is exercise. So in other words, you know, like a warm down or just your workout itself will improve and facilitate um, circulation. But that said, I think that compression wear can sometimes feel really nice. And one thing that it does do um, you know, de depending on what sort of thing you're doing, whether it's socks or maybe a sleeve or um, tights that are that are quite tight around hamstrings, say, is that they can um, sort of reduce some of the vibrations in the muscles. And this can feel better for some athletes. So it may just be sensation that, that some athletes find helpful. And, you know, I don't think that we should knock that. It doesn't mean that there's like some magical thing that's, that's happening um, that's improving performance, but if it's helping you feel better, I think, you know, I, I'm okay with, with people doing it for that reason alone. Um, but in terms of really improving performance, there's just not much evidence that it's doing anything meaningful from a physiological perspective. Now, psychologically, if it helps you feel better, and I think it's okay to do that. Well, let's talk about cold therapy and there's so many different variations of this as well ice baths cryotherapy float tanks and I think they're they're coming so much more to the forefront of recovery now you see recovery yeah. centers that have all of this um, is there any proof that these do speed up healing process heal the healing process or, or, or is there a superior method over the these few no it's really interesting i had always i i just really thought that ice baths and you know by extension cryotherapy which is where people will stand in these big vats where they uh release liquid nitrogen and it, it's very cold um yeah i, I thought that this was going to be helpful for recovery you know you can really feel that it's hurting so it must be doing something good but it turns out that the research on this is really interesting it turns out that that cold can actually rather than helping in some cases it may even impede recovery and if you think about the physiology here, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Um, so one of the reasons that cold and cryotherapy and these sorts of things, ice packs also fall into this, are said to work, you know, the reasoning behind it is that it's reducing inflammation. But if you think about it, what inflammation is, is your body's healing process. And so you don't actually want mm. to slow or reduce the healing process. Um, and that inflammation is part of your body, you know, sending out these, these agents to go and, and heal the damage that was done through exercise. 
And so there's some kind of interesting evidence actually showing that, so for instance, taking an ice bath after a hard workout may actually prolong recovery just a little bit. You know, these effects aren't huge, so it's not like you're going to absolutely wreck your recovery by taking an ice bath. But at the same time, ice baths are pretty unpleasant and like there's really no good evidence that they're helping your recovery. Um, but you know, there is a reason that I have an entire chapter in the book about placebos because placebos are really powerful. And, and one thing I learned while working on this book is that so many of the products and practices um, that are really heralded in, in this area for recovery, really when they work, it's via the placebo effect. And icing and ice baths and cryotherapy are really interesting because I think, you know, there's very good evidence from medicine looking at, you know, the types of placebos that are effective. And it turns out that that placebos that are unpleasant or painful are actually far more effective than ones that are inert or you know, really no nuisance at all. And same goes with, you know, expensive placebos work better than cheap ones. And so if you have something like cryotherapy, which costs a fair amount of money, you have to go somewhere to get it. It's, it's pretty unpleasant. Yeah. You can really create this scenario where you think, well, yeah, this is really unpleasant. I just spent a lot of money on this. It must really be working. When in fact, you know, the benefits are probably coming from your expectation that you're going to feel better. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's almost the same with um, massage. You know, people are always saying, you know, I'll I'll always ask, you know, how's that feeling? And they're like, it's so painful, but, you know, no pain, no gain. (laughs) You're like, well, right. uh, Not really. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. Massage is is such a fascinating case Mm. because almost every athlete loves this. I mean, I I think if there's a single recovery technique that is the most popular among athletes, it's massage. And I can tell you that personally, I, I love massage. I, I, you know, I would get a massage every day if I could. Um, but there's, there's really not great scientific evidence that it's, you know, from a physiological perspective, Mm. that it's helping, but I don't think that that means it doesn't work. And let me explain what I mean by that. You know, what are we talking about when we're talking about recovery? We're really talking about the body, um, you know, rejuvenating itself and, um, you know, recovering, relaxing and massage, you know, really vigorous sports massage may not be totally relaxing, but you're taking an hour out of your day to lie on a table and you're, you're not running around, you're not under stress. You're really sort of paying close attention to your body and checking in and, and, uh, you know, making time to really, uh, be present in your body. And I think there's something really valuable in that. And that may not be something that's easy to measure with data, but I think that it can be very important and very helpful nonetheless. And so, you know, one thing that I learned while working on this book is that, you know, not everything that works has a scientific explanation that sometimes, you know, if something can help you feel better, that may in and of itself be enough. And I'm not trying to promote, you know, quackery or anything like that. And I don't think people should be spending a lot of money or time on things that clearly don't work. But I think when it comes to recovery, so much of it and so much of the things that really, really help are just finding ways to relax. And, you know, if you're, if you have some ritual or some habit or something that 
you do that helps you relax, that relaxation in and of itself is the thing that's going to be helpful. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter whether that, you know, massage tool that you're using or, or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, physiologically is helping. If it's helping you relax, it's helping your body sort of unwind and you're giving your body, um, you know, that downtime and those resources that it needs to, to heal itself. Yeah, that's right. You, you're giving it that rest time. So let's talk about infrared saunas. Now, this is something that I love. I don't, oh. I don't know if I'm a weirdo in this, but I like the heat and I just oh. like to sweat. <laughs> okay, it could be that whole mind over matter uh-huh. thing. It's doing you know, something good for me if I'm, I'm sweating. So what are the findings around heat practices, uh, especially the infrared sauna? Yeah, well, so heat is basically, you know, it, it it does aid circulation, you know, your, your, um, your circulatory system, your veins, um, um, open up when you're hot, you know, they constrict when you're cold. And so it does help with circulation. Again, athletes don't have problems with circulations, like circulation is probably not your problem. It's probably not something that's impeding recovery at the same mm-hmm. time. He can be very relaxing. And I think this just goes back to my previous point that, you know, something that's helping you relax and that feels good can be beneficial for recovery. And so I encountered a lot of people while I was working on the book who really love infrared sauna. And then, you know, they say, Oh, should I keep doing this? And I say, well, if you really enjoy it, it helps you feel better. Sure. Definitely. If you're someone who says, Oh, you know, I, I hear these infrared saunas are really great, but they're expensive. And, you know, it's going to cost a lot for me to either purchase one myself or go somewhere where I can do it. And it's kind of a hassle. Like there's no reason to go out and do mm-hmm. it. There's nothing magical about an infrared sauna. I mean, you can go on the internet and find some absolutely ridiculous, completely unscientific <laughs> googly gawk, you know, pseudoscience that's talking about, you know, the benefits of, of infrared saunas. Um, you know, basically an infrared sauna is just a sauna that's a little bit cooler than a regular one. It's using a, a little bit different type of heat. It's just a, a little bit different heat on this, the infrared spectrum. It's, it's almost like a very low powered microwave that you're doing, seeing these vibrations in your body. And, you know, it's fine. It can help people feel better. I don't think that there's any magical thing that's going on to really aid recovery, except that you're relaxing. And again, that beneficial. Yeah. yeah. Well, then... What about a hyperbaric chamber? I mean, this sounds oh, like yeah. too good to be true. I've, I've checked out some websites and, you know, the claims are it elevates oxygen levels in the blood plasma and can penetrate into damaged tissue three times more, speeding up the healing process. Is, is this, what's, yeah, what's yeah. the truth behind this? It, yeah. This is a lot of nonsense. I mean, hyperbaric chambers are sometimes used in medical settings for very specific uh, situations, but there's just really no good evidence that they're helpful for for athletes. There's Again, this goes back to this heavy marketing and, and just everyone's looking for the magic bullet. And this is very appealing because there's you know, sort of this pseudoscientific explanation, but there's just, there's just no good evidence that this is helpful for recovery, you know, unless, you know, lying in a hyperbaric chamber, you know, gives you a very nice place and time and occasion to take a nap, you know, that nap that you take in the hyperbaric chamber may be the thing that's actually most beneficial. It's not the, not the chamber itself, but just the nap. (laughs) It's going to be the most expensive nap you'll ever take. Right. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, let's talk about massage tools. I mean, this is another question that I get asked a lot there. And there's so many more products out there as well. We've got, you know, every Mm -hmm. sort of massage gun out there now and, you know, the foam rollers and the trigger balls. Is there any evidence that these work or is it neurological perception? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's the latter. It really goes back. This is kind of the same as, as, any other kind of massage. Um, it's something that people tend to really enjoy. And again, if it feels good, if it helps you feel better, I think that's okay. Um, but from a physiological perspective, there's just not good evidence that this is really very helpful. I think, again, it goes to this perception and, and the expectation effect, frankly. You expect, you know, you feel it doing something and therefore you have this expectation that healing's occurring or that it's somehow, um, there's a, there are a lot of claims with massage things about flushing toxins and things like that. And I think, you know, one sort of red flag is anytime a product is, is making promises about toxins and flushing things, you know, that <laughs> it's, it's bogus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that said, you know, I will say that I, I did uh, I once uh, while I was working on the book, one of these massage guns, I, I tried one out and sort of the purveyor of this product tried it out on me. And the next day I noticed that I was really sore on my one, one shoulder and I couldn't figure out why. And then I remembered that, you know, this is exactly the, the place where I, you know, this guy had tested this massage thing on me. And I thought, wow, that not only did that not help my recovery, it, it actually kind of bruised me and made me feel crappy the next day. So probably hindered your recovery. Oh, wow. It's almost like though the, the power of the placebo. Yeah. Like yeah. I think it's working, then you know, good, great, good on you. But I mean, if it's, if it's expensive and unnecessary, then yeah. don't do it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So, well, I'd love to know what, cause you're an athlete, what recovery measures do you take now knowing what you know and, and what do you re- recommend athletes do that has the most evidence backed by science? Yeah. I mean, the very best thing you can do is take a nap. Frankly, um, sleep is the most powerful recovery tool that we have. Um, this is the time when your body is doing all the work that it needs to recover and to recuperate and to repair itself from the damage done by exercise. It's it's where, you know, when you're doing a hard workout, that's not when you're getting bigger, faster, stronger. Those improvements are made during the recovery process. And so much of this is done while we're sleeping, you know, while you're asleep, your body's making these repairs, it's releasing uh, different hormones that that uh, help with this stuff. So, you know, the worst thing an athlete can do is skimp on sleep. And I think one thing that a lot of athletes don't pay enough attention to is the detrimental effects of travel and particularly crossing time zones. And, you know, there's a scenario too, where you have to get up extra early to make your flight. Then you fly to a new time zone. Now you're getting poor sleep for at least the first night, maybe more. And some of that is hard to avoid, but I think there are a lot of things that you can do, you know, flying to that event a couple of days in advance to give yourself more time, um, taking care, you know, to, to do things to make sure that, that you're, you know, sort of primed to be able to get enough sleep, which means, you know, maybe not taking that really early morning flight, maybe, um, 
somehow adjusting yourself so that you're not having to make so many different adjustments to your body clock, which could mean that, you know, you go to the new place and you stay on your, your body clock time. You have meals at the normal time and the other time zone. If this is something that's amenable, you know, to the competition schedule and things like this. But I think sleep is just absolutely the most important thing when it comes to recovery and, and too many people and athletes even uh, just don't give it enough priority. And it really should be just as important to you as your training. Yeah, absolutely. Christy, thank you so much for your time. I love your book. It is a fantastic resource for every athlete out there. Um, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure talking with you. So basically what you've learned from that is simple is best. You don't need to be spending loads of money on all these crazy tools. Go and get yourself the book. The links are in the show notes. She covers so many more recovery methods that you're probably either doing or you have done or you know someone who's doing them. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please subscribe to the podcast. Everything helps. And I really appreciate you taking your time and listening in to this episode. Thank you so much again. Make sure you share it with your friends. And of course, as always, have an awesome day, week, month, and year. And we'll catch you next time. Bye.